Welcome to this week's episode of the Medal of Honor. I am your host, Tiffany Marchink. We are still doing the series, Take a Knee with Tiffany. In this series, we hear stories of strength and perseverance as it relates to suicide, mental health, sexual assault, physical assault, and many other things. This week, we're going to hear about the topic of addiction more specifically with alcohol. Today's guest is Navy Commander Teresa Carpenter. Teresa Carpenter is an active-duty Naval Commander with 25 years of service, including 10 years as an enlisted aviation electrician on the S-3B Viking aircraft. Upon her commissioning in 2006, she became a surface warfare officer and was subsequently accepted into the public affairs community in 2008. She's deployed three times to combat zones. Her programs across numerous commands have resulted in 18 Navy awards for public affairs excellence. She is a joint qualified officer with two master's degrees, one from San Diego State University in mass communications and media studies, and the other in national security and strategic studies from the Naval War College. In her off time, she is a blogger and host of the Stories of Service podcast, which highlights ordinary people from all walks of life, who show up in service to their communities. Navy Commander Teresa Carpenter, you've got metal. Welcome to the Medal of Honor podcast with your host, Tiffany Martz-Ching. In this series entitled, Take a Knee with Tiffany, we hear from military service members and veterans who share their personal stories about some topics that are quite taboo. These topics span from mental health to addictions, domestic violence, sexual assault, physical assault, and suicide. After these 15 stories are shared, we will hear from a panel of mental health professionals talk about trauma and, if untreated, can lead to addictions or suicidal ideations for attempting suicide. They also explain the different types of care available by a mental health professional. Let's join Tiffany now with this week's guest on the Medal of Honor. This is where it's at. Before you became a public affairs officer, you were enlisted. Did you do public affairs then, or was there something else you did 
as an enlisted person in the Navy? I was, I fixed airplanes. So I started off fixing the P3 Orion aircraft, and then I went to the S3B Viking aircraft. So I was a maintainer. What's the S3B? I don't know what that is. It's an anti-submarine warfare aircraft and a refueling aircraft. It's no longer around. Um, It's been decommissioned, I think is the right term. And now the, some other aircraft, I couldn't tell, I'm not in the aviation community anymore, but somebody has, some other platform has has taken on uh, that role on the carrier. But that was the big job of my airplane when I used to work on it was to refuel all the other aircraft in flight. So we played a very pivotal role in 2002, 2003, in the run-up to the war in Iraq. And then I did what's called a lap transfer into the public affairs community. And I've been a Navy public affairs officer since uh, approximately 2008. The military is such a male-dominated environment. You and I, I think, entered the military at about the same time frame in the mid-90s. So you've been in for what, like 27 years, about 26, 27, 28 years. In that time that you've served from the mid-90s until now, it's still a male-dominated environment. But the thing that's different now than it was when we entered the military is what has opened up to women. I'm curious, as you have seen during your career, these different positions open up, what your thoughts are? It's been awesome. I mean, there, there's certainly more uh, opportunity for women now uh, than ever before. Um, you really see the differences uh, primarily in the operational jobs. I, I can tell you I go to meetings now where I see a lot more women. There's still a lot more men, especially in the jobs that deploy. And and that could be for a variety of reasons. It could also be for family reasons. Usually um, when you have dual spouses, nine times out of ten, the woman usually gets out, not the man. So a lot of times the guys are the ones that kind of continue on. But I know the military is doing a lot to try to change that, and they're doing a lot to try to retain women because they see there's definitely um, – there's definitely a need uh, for us to retain women and to have more women uh, in the military because it increases our ability to be, I feel, more lethal. Because if we have people from all walks of life, not just women, but all different perspectives, all races, we're going to have the best ideas. When we have a bunch of you know, middle-aged white men of a certain socioeconomic level who are all making all the decisions, um, I just don't feel like that's healthy and it's not reflective of America. And so what I want to see is a military that is lethal and that can fight in all the top fights, but that is a representation of the American people as long as they can meet the standards. So I, I am very happy with what I've seen in the past 20 five, 26 years. It's wonderful to see the transformation of more inclusivity with not only women, but with other races and just more openness uh, to recruiting people from every walk of life, because I think that's what makes us who we are as Americans. I'd like to take a bit of a deep dive and get a little bit more personal. On LinkedIn, there was a post that you had made that read something like this. 
I can now put a name and face to childhood trauma. I can show that one can recover in the military from an alcohol-related incident. I can also show that for me, getting to my why of excessive alcohol consumption was what made getting trash no longer glamorous. Like, So I think people think that like when you're going through trauma or when you've had like, you know, some sort of an incident or you, you've dealt with things in your life that it's just this rock bottom moment and then you get this help and this treatment and then you move on and life is good. I, I just don't see it that way. I see it as you have these little fits and starts where you get a little bit better and you improve certain things, but you still have a lot more work to do. And then you improve some certain things and then you still have a lot more work to do. And, and, and that's what I feel like the circle, the cycle of life is. And so, and I also believe that people don't start and start life in the same places. Like some people start life with a lot of support, a lot of encouragement, a lot of love. And then some people have had things that have happened to them and they're still trying to work through those things. For me, I would get better in certain ways and I would have um, a lot of growth, a tremendous amount of growth from where I was, but I still wasn't completely healed. And, and free from a lot of those those feelings and a lot of those insecurities. And with me, um, my struggles had a lot to do with feeling inferior, feeling less than. I had a lot of internal shame um, because, you know, I was bullied a lot. I was beaten up a lot. And I internalized that. And so I thought that there was something wrong with me. I thought I wasn't smart. Um, I thought uh, people wouldn't didn't like to be around me. I thought I didn't have a lot of friends. And so I would do well for a few years or things would go okay and then something would happen like I'd go through a divorce or I would be in a very toxic work environment that wasn't healthy and it would bring up a lot of the issues that I still had in my past and they would tr- it would become very triggering and so that's why a lot of these things continue to resurface is because I would put myself in situations where I wanted the hardest job and I wanted to do the most work and I wanted to be wherever the promotions were or wherever it was, things are exciting. But in a lot of those environments, they're often very stressful. And when people are stressed, they're not always very kind to one. And so I would be in these environments and I just didn't know how to cope because I had had so much baggage from my childhood that I just hadn't properly worked through. And I didn't understand things like boundaries and, you know, maybe not taking those kinds of jobs anymore because maybe they aren't great for my mental health. Um, but those kinds of decisions just never would have happened because I was so intent on climbing the ladder and getting to the top and getting to where I am now. And so it would just boil over and I would find ways to numb through alcohol, through a success. If I promoted, then everything was great. Or if I got an award or, you know, if things were going good at work and I was getting along with people, then things were fine. But the sense within myself to rest upon was never completely full. And I still think even to this day, I've got a lot to work on. And I still find myself in certain situations where I feel triggered. And I know that's going to continue to happen. And so I wrote the story to kind of give a voice to that and say, it's not just this one-time thing that you deal with, you move on and things are great. It's not the way trauma works. You're probably going to live with it the rest of your life and you can hope and, and not just hope, but you can work on making it a little bit better with time 
and become happier within yourself, with your friends and your family. But, but all that is going to be a process and it's going to take years and you have to be accepting and patient with that. And so that was my way of putting that story out there. And I also wanted people to see that they don't have to have an incident happen in their career and think that their career is over. There are people who have recovered from these issues and from these incidences, and we shouldn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are some people who are worth saving, and I would argue that I was worth saving, and I did make a contribution to the military long after these incidences happened. So I was an example of somebody that was able to work through these issues and move on. With the alcohol for you, did you ever get to a point to where you said, you know what? This alcohol isn't cutting it. It's not numbing my feelings like I wanted to anymore. Or I just can't handle doing this anymore. From this point on, I'm done. No more alcohol. Just cold turkey. I'm out of it. I'm done. It was never a never. I never said never, but I stopped. Like, I I stopped. Like, after my DUI, I stopped for about a year. After that incident in in, in um India, I stopped for another year. Um. But the difference between the starting back up now and the starting back up after the DUI is the fact that I've, I've not gotten drunk since. Like, I'm a one, I'm a one drink person. You know, like, I don't even like, like maybe I'll have another drink if it's like on a long period of time. But the desire to get trashed is just not there because I know why I was doing it. And I don't like that reason. I've changed my attitude about it because I was getting drunk to relieve my social anxiety. That was why. I wasn't getting drunk alone. You know, I wasn't one of those drunks that got drunk when I was by myself, ever. I was getting drunk in groups to relieve my anxiety about myself in front of people who don't know me. Like, it's okay one-on-one, right? Because those people know you and you've got this friendship and that's fine. But when you're in a big group of people who don't know you, yeah, you don't know. They could be judging you, right? Um, and that was always a very nerve wracking situation for me because I felt like I had to perform. And so when I finally got to the root of that and I thought, you know what? I, I don't have to perform for these people. They're no better than me. I'm no better than them. They're probably just feeling as, especially work social events, you know, mm-hmm. they're probably feeling just as awkward and is insecure as anyone else because they don't know if anyone really knows them. I mean, so there is something really sucky about telling somebody your story or talking to them and having them kind of like give you the thousand yard stare or roll their eyes at what you say. You can just tell. You can tell when you're talking to somebody that doesn't get you. And I have been in work environments where my boss didn't get or my direct report didn't get. And it was just, or I have a coworker who's sitting right next to me every day who doesn't get. And those kinds of situations would trigger feelings from my past and being bullied. And then I would feel nervous and I would feel anxious. And then I would drink to relieve that anxiety. And so when I got to this place where I'm like, I don't care. Like these people, they cannot like me, but I don't have to, you know, I don't have to, I'm not going to, I am not going to put something in my body that is not healthy and cause myself to feel like crap the next day for some people that may not understand who I am. I just, I, they don't deserve that. And so because I changed my attitude about drinking, I didn't, I didn't have that compulsion to want to do it. So now at this point, you go out to eat with some coworkers, some friends, whoever, and 
the other people in your party order an alcoholic beverage and you don't. You grab something else. Water, tea, soda, whatever. Or even better, these same people know your story, but you grab an alcoholic beverage as well. Is there some sort of, you know, what's your deal? Why aren't you getting an alcoholic drink? Or are you sure you should be drinking that? Because after all, you do kind of have an issue. Like, what's up? That was the reason why I wrote the story. Was because I didn't want to be a secret. Because I wanted to basically... What my article is, is a completely different way of looking at alcohol. And there are Mm -hmm. people that I know who... In fact, I had a friend who told me not to write it the way I was going to write it. He said, you should not tell people that you're not sober. Because it's going to trigger people who are sober. And it's going to make them think they can do it too. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I can't... I'm not going to... You know, I'm not going to not share my truth at the expense. I mean, if someone else can't do that, I get it. Like, sometimes people just don't even want to be around it. They don't even want want to have a drink. But for me, um, they can judge me for that, and they cannot understand it. And But I'm also the same person who had a psychotic episode and was told by a doctor, there's no way you won't, you won't have one again. And that's been, what, 20, 25 years. So... I think that because I, again, I don't look at alcohol the same way. It's almost like you were attracted to somebody, right? And then you saw who they really were. And then you just can't feel those attraction feelings anymore. There's no sexual urges with that person because you see them differently. That's how I feel about getting drunk. I feel the same way. Like, I don't want to be in that place where I don't control what I say and what I do. And I don't think anyone deserves me feeling that anxious anymore like why should i why why should i have to drink to 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 feel okay we'll be right back I hate to interrupt you here, but it sounds like there are people who think that being sober means that you can't have a drop of alcohol ever again. But, and maybe my definition of what it means to be sober is is wrong or jaded somehow, but I think that being sober means that where alcohol once controlled me and my mindset and the way I did things, it now no longer has that same control. Like. Maybe I can drink alcohol and be okay with it knowing because I know what my limit is. Whereas there are others who might have to say from this point on, I can't have any alcohol because I don't know how to have just one. Am, am I off basis here or like what, what? I don't think, the, I don't think your definition is wrong. I think your definition is spot on, but the sobriety can you. Um, people that do AA and they do the 12 step program, which was also a part of my recovery as well. I mean, I learned a lot in those rooms and, and, and grateful for the time I spent there. I just see, you're right. I see sobriety differently. And for me, it was getting to the bottom of why I was drinking and then not seeing the, the glamorous side to drinking because I, I would literally associate partying with being cool and being fun. And being able to be myself. And I'm going to turn on a light because it's 
knock here real quick, but I'll keep talking if you don't mind, just because I'm starting to fade in here. But um, there was a definite change that when I was when I was out and about with people, I didn't want to have a second drink anymore. I just wanted to have one drink and go to bed. Even if I'm around people I don't know. Even if I'm around people who I know don't like me. And that's when I knew, like, I, I got I, I to handle on this now. Because I can even be around people who uh, don't maybe don't care for me, aren't my friends, whatever, and, and not feel the need to, to get trashed and do something stupid. Yeah, was, I mean, I just, I love it. When I finally got to the point, I think for me, to be able just to say, I'm going to be me and right. take it or leave it. Yep. It was a hard transition, I think, because oh, it it's so easy. And I don't think the military really helps it because in the military, we size each other up within like 10 seconds just by looking at the other person's uniform. And we formulate this opinion about them based upon their rank, their awards and decorations, and how we just have this opinion about the other person only because of what their uniform looks like. But we don't really know the person. And that's kind of what I hope to accomplish with this podcast because uh, I I mean, I think, I think what people do in the military is great. It's amazing. Um, You make it however far you do, but like a Navy SEAL is just as much of a person as an army cook. You know, they they both have jobs to do in the military there, that job is a job in the military for a reason because it's needed. A Navy SEAL needs to eat. An Army infantry person, infantryman needs to eat. And if nobody, they can't go fight their battles and cook their food at the same time and fully function. So I just think, so that's why I hope to kind of take the uniform off of people and see them for who they are. And, oh, yeah. and 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 get behind us, and that's why I, I really appreciate you sharing your story because, um, you know, people probably have this mindset of I'm not going to talk about how much alcohol I do or do not drink. I don't want to talk about my anger issues. I don't want to talk about you know my mental health. That's nobody else's business. And and you're you're right. It's nobody else's business. But sharing that piece of you that people are so like it's such a taboo topic topic to talk about can actually help somebody else go get the help that they need because they heard your story or they heard my story or whatever it is. So Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I definitely have been advised by a lot of people that I share too much online and uh, you know, I shouldn't be the way that I am. Um and and I don't share everything. I mean the way that maybe I'm more comfortable sharing stories that others won't but I still have stories in my past that I'm not comfortable sharing as well I I mean I have my boundaries um I just feel that there are certain things that I've been able to overcome that I know other people are struggling with and I hear about it and so if I know that there's somebody out there who could be helped by a by a story or something that I've overcome then I want that opportunity to be able to help and give back and then conversely, when I share my story, it helps lift that shame for myself because mm-hmm. now it's in the open. Like I never got to worry about like somebody using that DUI or, or that incident, these instances against me 
because I, I, I've talked about them. I've owned it. I've told you my story. You can you can go on my page. You can read read my posts. I mean, I, I'm not hiding it. And so that there's a lot of freedom uh, that comes with that because yeah. I never have to worry about if you want to know about these these things. You, all you got to do is ask me because I'm comfortable sharing about it. Um, it is interesting though because I have been asked about the article a few times, um, even in person, even down here. A couple people saw it and. It is hard, like, to tell the story in person. I haven't done that a lot. And then to get into, like, the nitty-gritty details of what happened, because it was really embarrassing. And that next morning, especially in Malabar, I'm, like, sitting in the wardroom, and my admiral's right across the table from me, and I'm like, oh, my God, did he see me? Did he know? I mean, I was, I was so horrified. I didn't tell my husband about it for, like, three weeks. I, I waited. I had already, I can't remember if I'd already gone to DAPA at that point, the Drug and Alcohol Program Advisor. Um, but I was still trying to formulate what I was going to do about it because at that point, I thought this is getting to a place where I can't control it because if I'm just going to get shit face drunk every single time I'm around people that I'm not friends with and that aren't my buddies and that I'm not comfortable with, then this is a problem that is going to be the end of my career. Like I'm going to lose my, I'm going to lose my job over this if I don't get a handle on it. And I knew like there was something to that. Like, why do I need to drink in groups? And I really wanted to get, and I knew it had something to do with anxiety, but I didn't really understand it. And to, to tell you the truth, sharing my story and being as active as I am online has been really therapeutic for me because I have the ability with my online platforms to bring a community around me, people who get me, um, because I am not like your typical officer. I, I don't really think I embody some of the typical traits of a, of a quote unquote warfighter. Uh, some, some of the stereotypical ways that people see um, a Navy warfighter. And so, um, this gave me this opportunity to share that story in a platform. And yes, there was going to be the critics and there was going to be some people who didn't agree with what I did. But I'll tell you, Tiffany, the perception has been overwhelmingly positive. I've literally had one piece of criticism or two, one or two. That's it. Compared well, to like know, hundreds of good comments. Yeah. And I'm, I'm learning that principle now because I just recently shared my story, a part of my story on my, on my podcast and the, response has been pretty overwhelming in a good way like the amount of people that have been like good job or, or whatever right. I'm like that's not what I was expecting to hear um, and I've known that it's a, it's true that the more you share your story um, the good the bad and a lot of the ugly um, it, that that it there's a lot that wants to hold you back from sharing it and um, I'm just, I don't think, and it was just recently, so I don't think, I don't think I've gotten any negative comments from it yet. <laughs> you probably won't. I mean, and it takes a lot of keyboard warrior-ness, I think, to, to say something negative. or They may think it's constructive. I mean, the person who commented on, on mine was just pretty much like, you should have had a consequence. You should have had to, obviously, you didn't learn your lesson the first time, or you wouldn't have had that second incident. Well, the second incident was not why. Um, but it didn't, you're right. It didn't curb the drinking or the drinking to excess. Um, 
It did, however, get me in the rooms with AA people and recovery. And I learned a lot through that. Like everybody has problems, not just you. That was the big thing I got out of AA was how horrible some people's pasts are. And kind of like, I mean, I was going to rooms with people who had childhood rape and, and incest and just, just horrible, horrible things that they've been through, been prostitutes and had to sell drugs for years and years and just to survive. And I just, I, I saw like the, the real face of addicts and, and that was so enlightening for me, but it didn't necessarily curb the social anxiety um, altogether. And that's why I'm saying it wasn't something that like happened all the time. It was if I was in a particular group and I wasn't feeling comfortable and all those other things. But now that I am free from that, it feels really, really good. I've accepted the fact that I'm probably not going to be everybody's cup of tea and that's okay. So Um, let me ask you this. Do you feel like, do you, Because I kind of do for me. Do you feel like now that you've experienced, um, now that you've experienced a battle with alcohol, um, and I think you said previously you had experienced, uh, some, some bullying. Do you feel like now that you've experienced it, you've gone through some recovery stuff and, and you're, going in the right direction, do you feel like maybe now you're a little bit more open and accepting of other people, whether they have the same type struggle or something different, you're, you're more accepting of them as people? I was always accepting of people. I've never been a judgmental person. So I've always been that. That was for me then. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, honestly, like, you know, I, it really makes me feel good when someone sits down and tells me about some of their problems because I've shared mine. Like, whether it's through the internet or if it's in person. It happened, like I said, this week a couple times in person where somebody shared with me their their story. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm really, that's really powerful that you can share something online and then someone reads it and then they see you and they make it a point to tell you that your story, I mean, it's just, it's profound. I can't even really describe it when, when that happens. And Having had it happen here in person was really interesting and brought me much closer to that particular person. And now it's somebody I always like seeing and, you know, always want to eat with when I go downstairs to have dinner or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I just think there's so much power in it. It's, it's, you definitely have to still have boundaries and anything that you share publicly, no matter what it is, you have to be prepared, um, that not everyone's going to be comfortable with your, the way that you're sharing. And, and that's okay. Um, but one thing I try not to do is re-traumatize people. So I, I try to take very special care not to hurt the people who may have been hurtful towards me again, because they have a different perspective on maybe how they saw what happened. And the last thing I really want to do is tear a scab off and, and revisit some issue. That's why I try not to, I try to just focus on my side of the story. That's a that's an art and something a lot of people don't teach storytellers how to do is how do you share your story in a way that isn't going to cause all this problems between you and your loved ones. And it's a delicate, delicate balance. And I'm still navigating it, but I've done a pretty good job. 
of, of being able to do that because I just know that that is the last thing I want is that's my story to share. It's not my job to litigate their side of the street or throw blame around or, or whatever. Um, because that doesn't move the conversation forward and that's not the intent of, of putting the piece out. Speaking of storytelling, talk about the SOS podcast, the Stories of Service podcast. How did how did that get started? What prompted you to start this podcast? I had an idea that I wanted to interview my father. And I'd done webinars in the past for mentoring organizations and nonprofits, so I knew how to interview. But there's a, like you like you know all too well, Tiffany, there is a lot to learn in the podcasting world. Even if you have an amateur podcast, you still have mm-hmm. to understand camera and and, and the websites and, and so I had to get into the weeds with all those details. So I just slowly started researching and figuring out if this was something I could do. And then stories of service and why it's about stories and, and service was because I wanted a subject and I wanted to take a tack that was so broad that I could bring in anyone who inspires me. I did not want to be limited. And I knew that was going to hurt me to a degree because they always say, oh, you're supposed to have a niche and what is your niche so we can categorize you and because then you'll build an audience within that category and then you can branch out from there. And that's not the tact I chose because I just felt like I wanted to interview who I wanted to interview. So if I want to have an animal advocate on one day, one week and then have a dad on another week or my cousin or, or somebody in the military, that's what I'm going to do. And so Stories of Service is called SOS for short, Ordinary People Who Do Extraordinary Work. And my whole concept there is that we all are just ordinary people, but ordinary people stick, you know, show up in service and they do amazing things. We're all just figuring life out. And when you start to see people that way, like you don't see the president as being any better or worse than, like you said, the cook or the janitor, then everybody has something to offer. And everybody's special and beautiful and does something cool in their own right. And so that's the purpose of the podcast is just to bring together people who inspire me or whose story I think will inspire others. I think that's amazing. Looking at a podcast as a platform to just amplify the good that people are doing, not just people who have some sort of title, but amplifying the good that the average person is doing out there. I love that. Thank you and have a nice day.